News on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly with Mary Ellen Novak. We're with Gays Against Guns, which fights for the end of the epidemic of gun violence in America. Last night, New Yorkers gathered for a candlelight vigil against gun violence. Gays Against Guns joined New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, Youth Over Guns, Harlem Mothers Save, Moms Demand Action, and other advocates. Along with clergy and elected officials, New Yorkers came together to join Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, Attorney General Tish James, and Congress members, including Yvette Clark, Carolyn Maloney, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Here's Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams at the vigil last night. Thank you so much, uh, Adrian, and I want to thank our entire uh, congressional delegation uh, that is joining us today. And most importantly, I want to thank you. I want to thank the uh, men and women and children of this city. Uh, we feel the pain of those who lost their loved ones to senseless gun violence. And even when the bullet strikes the actual target, the pathway of that bullet may physically stop, but the emotional trauma rips through the anatomy of our community and the anatomy of our country. It continues to travel. And that is why we're here today at Grand Army Plaza. And when I think about mass shootings, look at the numbers. 21 mass shootings in our country since July 27th. 59 people have lost their lives to this epidemic. To this year, this year alone, 250 mass shootings have taken place. Over the weekend, we heard two horrific shootings first in El Paso, Texas, and then only a few hours later at Dayton, Ohio. 29 people were killed and dozen, dozen others were injured. And last weekend, at Old Timers Day, an event that takes place in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And we really need to focus on this because it's significant and important. When our congressional delegation and our assemblywoman, Latisse Walker, and councilwoman, Alika Samuels, attempted to designate a shooting in Brownsville, Brooklyn, as a mass shooting, they were, they re resistance. If the shooting in Brownsville would have happened on Park Avenue and not Park Place, we would have a different response in this city and in this country. When it comes to the horrific acts of violence, we treat places differently. Doesn't matter if it's El Paso. When you saw the horrific hatred that followed the gunshot, straight from weeks away or days away from having the president of these disunited states telling congressional members they need to go back to their country. Demonizing people who attempt to come to America just to find a healthy way of life. We know what is happening over and over again. That's why we must be as vociferous and strong and most important, we must be united. If we are not united, we lose this fight. We will be taking your calls shortly at 212-209-2881. But first, we are joined by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Uh, 
we're going to ask for you to call in with some reactions to um, the vigil last night, if you were there. And we're going to hear what uh, Cory Booker had to say at the presidential debate. Cory Booker said, uh, first of all, I want to say my colleague and I have been hearing about gun violence on the campaign trail. But what's even worse is I hear gunshots in my neighborhood. I think I'm the only one. I think I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood last week. Someone I knew, Shahad Smith, was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. For millions of Americans, this is not a policy issue. This is an urgency. And for those that have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and how to deal with an active shooter at their school. We are um, anticipating uh, Brooklyn Borough President uh, Eric Adams on the line. And Eric Adams, welcome to WBAI 99.5 FM. Thank you so much, and good evening to the WBAI family. Yeah. Um, we're so excited that you can be here tonight, and I was at the rally last night, and it was really, really powerful. Can you give us some context about the Brownsville community where you grew up? Right now, Brownsville is really sim sim symbol a symbol of the things that really you see across America when it comes down to the urban centers. When we have the conversation about gun violence, we normalize the violence in the Brownsville, the south side of Chicago, Compton, Liberty City, and other parts of urban centers where gun violence is really taking place every day. And if you don't really dig, dig into the conversation, it will go over your head. But the only time the federal and state government moves towards finding solutions is when you have what's called mass shooters using assault rifles. That is not America's problem. Of course, it's horrific for anyone to die to gun violence, but when you do a comparison of the number of Americans that die with gun violence, they, one, are black and brown people, and two, they're killed by handguns, 9 millimeters, 38, those types of weapons. Yet there are no real programs or no real initiatives that, that really target those areas and it is wrong for us to continue to ignore where we are seeing the real crisis of gun violence. You spoke very strongly last night at the rally about that. Um, can you tell us, um, what would you say to young people who say that they need a gun for protection, especially in these dangerous times? And, and that's a great question because it is a real feeling. And I, I never dismiss or interpret the pain that people are experiencing until you walk in, in, in their shoes or experience what they're experiencing. You need to really come from a position to seek to understand in order to be understood. You have places in Brownsville, which is a saturation of some of the largest population of NYCHA in the country, where young people cannot cross the street and visit friends loved ones in other NYCHA facilities 
They're unable to go to some stores. They're unable to really have a normal childhood. And they're experiencing trauma. And some of them really believe that they need a gun to protect them. And it doesn't make it right. I'm sure that those that say, uh, you know, this is ludicrous. How could anyone feel this way? But that's the reality. When you have households where uh, more than one loved one was lost to either either uh, gang violence, gun violence, or stabbed or assaulted, uh, these young people don't have any strong belief in law enforcement, and they feel the only way they can protect themselves is to carry a firearm. And even in the Brownsville shooting where the mass shooting where 11 people were shot, uh, it was reported that two guns were found in the shooting. One of them was what, was called, what is called a community gun, where different members of a gang would use that same gun, hide it in a location in the community, and they would go and retrieve the gun as they decide to use it in a robbery or some form of assault. So, Eric, this is Mary Ellen Novak, and with that, I just want to ask a follow-up question. Uh, as people are walking around saying, you and you had just mentioned this, that they're fearing for their own protection, uh, maybe ma- people within their communities, and they want to then, because they're feeling threatened, get their own guns. What would you say to somebody who approached that and pr- who said that to you? I, I clearly show them the pathway out and, and speak not down to people but with them. There's great on-the-ground organizations like SOS, an acronym for Save Our Street, a man up with a, a, a young man named A.T. Mitchell, uh, Erica Ford in South Jamaica, Queens, initiatives all over the city where we have individuals that are called violence interrupters. They are taking a holistic approach to violence and treating violence as a disease and not just some action that takes place on the stage of our communities every day. And we're looking at how do you bring people out of gangs? How do you go after uh, issues when there is some form of a shooting to prevent retaliatory shooting, needing family members in the hospital? And what I personally do is direct them to organizations like that on the ground so they can start healing from within. Uh, Trauma is real. Many of our young people are going through PTSD um, from the fear of being harmed or reliving the experience of losing a loved one to violence. And it is my goal to show them holistically how they address that. That is why I am pushing and we are moving towards allowing our young people to have meditation before they start their school day. I sent a group of teachers away for this training, and I'm looking to spread it throughout Brooklyn because we have to arm people not with guns but with tools that will allow them to deal with the, the crises and the stress and trauma that they're experiencing every day. Every day. I That's commendable. I love uh, hearing that. That's the first time that I heard any solution to that extent uh, as far as uh, training people to be more aware of their uh, environment and also self-care. Uh, so thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about that. So another... From, yes, go ahead. And it's, from, and it's from my personal experience. When I left policing, uh, I was shattered. Uh, I didn't know I was experiencing PTSD, but I was. And Meditation was able to help me turn down the noises in my head of losing close friends. Uh, Robert Venable, Venable is one I think about. Uh, little did I know that every time I thought about his uh, the killing of Robert Venable and, and other close friends who died uh, during those times, and the countless number of times visiting hospitals, seeing uh, young people with bullet holes, 
and going through the trauma, if you don't deal with that trauma, you're going to forcefully attempt to self-medicate yourself through alcohol or lifestyle that is really destructive to you. But once I saw the power of going inward, the power of uh, what meditation does, this is not just some hippie stuff that people would try to classify. The science shows that if we start healing ourselves from within the uh, neuroplasticity of our brain, allows us to rewire our brain to have strong inner thoughts, and it strengthens us. And we can take it everywhere, not only to deal with gun violence, but to deal with the stress that we have in our personal lives, our relationships, our employment. Some people are going through homeless issues and other issues. If we give people the power of healing, uh, they won't look for external ways to heal themselves. Uh, And I'm aware of mindfulness tactics as well. So I really appreciate that. I can relate to a lot of what you were just saying. So uh, just one quick follow-up question to that. Do you have any recommendations for where people can get access to uh, these types of resources that aren't in the immediate area who are listening beyond Brooklyn? Uh, are there any books or any other resources that you could just recommend? One of the most powerful books I've read is by Dr. Dr. Spencer. He has a series of books, but the first one I read was You Are the Placebo, and the other is Supernatural. Very powerful books, especially You Are the Placebo. It is a book that will allow a person just to get a beginning understanding of what it means to rewire your brain and allow you, you know, one, one an opportunity to just grow beyond the current pain. And a second of there are, there's a partnership I have with the David Lynch Foundation. Amazing results in Chicago. In Chicago, they did a series of tests in the school system where they took half the students and put them through what they call quiet time slash meditation, and the other half that did not participate. They saw a 69% drop in recidivism and violence in the, among the group that participated. So this is a real way, a a not expensive, non expensive way of really dealing with some of the real trauma and crises that people experience in every day. Thank you. You know, you are giving us uh, tools now, and just as a wrap up uh, so that we can take some callers, I'd, I'd like to ask you what message can you give to New Yorkers in the face of so much hate and violence, and specifically um, El Paso? Uh, white supremacy, um, the real terrors that we're facing? Your question is such a powerful question because we see a level of hopelessness and as one of the famous soulful ballads, if you take a close look at my face, you'll see my smile is out of place in the tracks of my tears. People are hurting and we need to look at each other closely and look at the pain and allow people to know that they matter and sometimes we don't believe that our gentle touch, our warm embrace, our smile, our hello, and merely saying uh, good morning, good afternoon in a real way. You know, we're all wounded, but we should become wounded healers. And if we do it together, we won't, we won't allow the messages that's coming out of the, on a national level, we won't allow it to sort of, uh, my concern is not so much who number 45 is. My concern is who are we becoming? When families no longer sit down at Thanksgiving and communicate with each other because they're hanging on to the tweets of someone that is just mean-spirited, nasty, 
when we no longer embrace each other as neighbors and families, what we call long-term residents, outsiders, go back to your country. We have to change the dialogue, and it starts with us. Michael Jackson said it best. Let's look at the man in the mirror. Yeah. Thank you so much, Borough President Eric Adams, and thank you for giving us that opportunity last night to hold hands, to look at each other in the eyes, and to embrace on a community level. So thank you. thank you very much. And Mary Ellen, you were at the vigil last night. Um, what was your experience there? It was just uh, very, very moving. I've been to a few vigils, a few actions and events uh, hosted by GAG and uh, organized by other grassroots organizations. And I really have to tell you, it was an amazing, very moving experience again. And I think what really drove it home was that uh, there were shoes, empty shoes lined up with candles uh, between each one of them. And it just resonated and really was more impactful to really demonstrate the loss of lives and the shoes had represented all of the victims and that the visual images the visuals that uh, that happen and we observe in all of these actions and uh, vigils and events that's what really drives the message home Uh, I know with gag we have our human beings Uh, they are dressed all in white and they're silent and they take space for victims of gun violence. So that's a very good uh, uh, representation of lives lost. So that's an opportunity for people to hear all of the amazing uh, speeches and words of advice and insight, but then also to reflect upon, uh, again, a visual image. Yeah, it was powerful, and for me, I think it was the number of representatives that we had there, Yvette Clark, Carolyn Maloney, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and my hero, uh, Attorney General uh, Tish James. Mm-hmm. And you're listening to the news on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm Sarah Germain Lilly with Mary Ellen Novak. This is the news hosted by Radio Gag. Uh, We have a one-hour format tonight, and on with us will be Kathy Marino-Thomas, Gag member and executive director of Marriage Equality New York, who has been involved in extensive research and analysis of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. So thanks for joining us, Kathy, um, and help us connect the dots. Uh, How are you? I'm great. How are you, Kathy? I'm very well, thank you. I'm sitting outside, though. I hope you guys can hear me all right. Yeah, we can hear you great. And I'm going to have Mary Ellen take over from here. So, hey, Kathy. Hi, Mary Ellen. Hey, Kathy. Uh, So, with the NRA, so there's a lot of uh, new phrases, new topics that they're trying to push. And uh, there is a new argument that they want to focus more on mental health and violent video games and other media to curb the gun violence. So how would you react to all of that, those comments? You know, the Texas Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, states this kind of rhetoric around uh, video games teaching young people to kill Republican House minority leaders uh, of California even um, tried to make this connection. But the fact of the matter is that there have been uh, studies of violent video games for more than 15 years, and the research does not find any clear connection between a violent video game and aggressive behavior. 
Yeah, I I agree with you. And I have to say, I think you've heard me say this before, is that uh, with the NRA, it almost seems whoever holds those puppet strings, they have a big manual that basically when something isn't working, their messages aren't working anymore, uh, such as the thoughts and prayers, they'll move on to something else, which is now the mental health crisis. And, you know, deflect, deflect, deflect is the name of the game with these folks. There are also studies, you see, if we could back up just a minute, if our CDC was actually allowed to study gun violence as a mental health issue or as a, as a I'm sorry, not a mental health issue, as a health crisis, then um, we would find out what the actual connections were between uh, this country's fascination with guns and our crime rate and our mass shootings. So but, you- uh, studies around all of the things that the NRA is trying to deflect to show that there is no conne- that there is no or a minimal connection as with mental health it's actually shown in studies by the American Pediatric Society the American Medical Association etc that if a gun is available it is more likely to be used in a crime or a, or a shooting or a domestic violence um, occurrence so Every time they throw something out to us to deflect, we can point to these independent studies as proof that that is just actually not the case. What we really should be looking at is something called the NRA rating. We should find out who's an A rating in our, in our elected officials with the NRA and get them out of office. So are there any NRA A-plus rated uh, politicians that you can think of off the top of your certainly, head? <laughs> certainly there are. Mitch McConnell would be one. This man is not only an, an A-rated NR, uh, by the NRA, but he's an obstructionist in our government. I would say we should start with him. There is a long list of them, mostly Republican, but there are a few Democrats. And I think that when we go to the polls, it should be one of the criteria that we look up about our local politicians, our state level and our federal level elected officials. If that person is an NRA rated A, it is not a good thing for us. I completely agree with you. So uh, with regard to the NRA and its influence, uh, there's been uh, they're beginning to become dismantled and they're falling apart. Do you have any perspective about that? I think it's all of us pulling in the right direction. There are enough people outraged by mass, by, by gun violence in this country um, to get up and do something about it. It's the American way, and I believe that it's actually working. We are exposing them for what they're doing. We're calling politicians out on siding with them over their constituents and, and humanity in general. I mean, there is no reason for an individual to own an assault rifle. There's no reason. But they make you sound, make it sound like we live in a country that's, you know, we're being massacred as we walk down the street, which we are, but only because of their gun sales. It's sort of a round robin, Mary Ellen. You know what I'm saying? And they're selling their end of it. And their end of it can be proven not to be so. Right. So let me ask you something as far as the legislation. Uh, The red flag bill was just recently passed here in New York. And let's just imagine that anything's possible right now, anything. And if you had an opportunity to write your own bill uh, regarding gun reform, uh, any changes whatsoever, any enhancements, what, what would you focus on? What would be at the top of your list as far as changes and what would go in that? Since um, right long enough. And the worst part about that is 
that if the 72 hours has passed and nothing has come back in the background check, it's an automatic yes, should be an automatic no, because 72 hours is not enough time. So it would definitely be extended background checks. It would be uh, closing the gun show loophole, because um, in many states, if you buy a gun at a gun show, you get a, you get away without that background check. Um, basically, what I would do, Mary Ellen, is I would look at things from a federal perspective and try to bring the standard of gun ownership up federally. Because right now it's a patchwork of laws at a state level, right? So you could go from one state to the next state uh, and move the guns around in that way because uh, some states are more lax in their gun laws than others. But if we had an umbrella federal law that that uh, did things like prevent trafficking of guns, for example, that would help a lot. It would help a lot in community violence. Um, if we had something in the law to uh, extend the background check, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think it's really important, um, that was at a federal level, making the background check law federally 10 days, which I don't think is an unreasonable ask, it would help a great deal. Things of that nature. And, uh, Excellent, excellent insight. So uh, with regard to, you just reminded me of something, with regard to the taking the guns across state lines, uh, there's a bill, I understand, that's in the Senate right now, S-69, I think, which is the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act. Yes. And yes. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Well, basically, concealed carry reciprocity would make the lowest grade, grade gun law in the country the law of the land. What it basically says is that all states must must honor and respect the laws and the laws around guns of other states. This is a problem for us. It's a problem for us here in New York that someone from Texas, where there is a concealed carry law, uh, could, uh, if they could prove that they're from Texas, they could come here and honor their state law. That would be devastating in, in a place like Times Square or where I'm sitting right now, Bryant Park. Or in to the have theaters. someone with concealed carry weapons, or in the theater, or anywhere. It's just, it's not the right move for our country. Now, the idea of that bill is what I'm getting at. But the particulars are obviously against what I believe is so. But the idea of that bill is an umbrella federal law, which I think is the right approach for us, but of course not, <laughs> not in this particular way, right? Yes, yes, uh, completely agree. And uh, the other thing you had mentioned, I just wanted to take a step back for a second, and you were talking about the research, which is really important because that's also going into the states and how guns are affecting each one of the states. Yeah. And But the research, the CDC is no longer conducting any research. Can you explain why that is? Well, there's something called the Dickey Amendment that blocks funding uh, on gun violence to the CDC. So they're not getting anything in their budget to study gun violence as a health epidemic. Um, so that prevents them, of course, because, you know, they need money to do that research. And they can't do it. And they haven't been able to do it for quite some time. Yes. So we could start there. If activists would uh, pound on the doors of the, of the Senate to uh, review and appeal the Dickey Amendment, we could get some funding for gun violence research, and we could make a move here and, and dispel some of these myths that the NRA is trying to uh, push out there. And people are actually believing because, you know, they want their guns that badly. I mean, we need to find out what it is in the, in, in the human mind that makes them so obsessed with a gun. 
Kathy, I wondered if you could comment on the dysfunction in the NRA right now. They're under multiple investigations. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and do you think that that's going to weaken their influence on our Well, let me first process? say that that's very lucky for us gun violence protection advocates, <laughs> because the more they're investigated, the more they'll come down, and, and the uh, corrupt leadership that they have in their organization will be dismantled to some degree. So that's a, that's a great thing for for gun violence protection laws and outlooks. Um, I think that, as I said earlier, it's because people are pushing back. We have reached some NRA members. Listen, 90% of the country agrees with most of what I'm saying to you. No, nowhere did I say, uh, you know, repeal the Second Amendment or whatever nonsense it is completely on the right that they that they. Uh, out in protection of their obsession. I'm not saying any of that for the moment. For the moment. Not that I don't believe no guns is the right move, but let's just take it a piece at a time. And our NRA members are, are seeing that, and they believe in, in longer background checks, and they believe in better research, and they believe in, in all of that. It's the NRA leadership and their dysfunction that is blocking those things from being accepted by, by the members and well, we really appreciate your insight. Uh, we are hoping Thank that you. we have uh, some fair elections coming up in 2020. And well, we in closing, I will say that every person needs to get up and be active in some way. I always have. I, I, I've been an activist for a long time, and one of my mantras is: if you can't give me some time, then write a check, but do something. <laughs> Everyone must do something to pull this country back in the direction of democracy overall. And on this issue of gun violence in particular. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy Marino Thomas, for joining us today. And you're listening. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank okay. you. You're listening to the news on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. We now turn to an important part of the gun violence prevention movement the grassroots activism of Moms Demand Action. On the air with us is Sunny Moon. Physician and mom, welcome. You are on the air on WBAI FM. Hi, Sunny. It's Mariel and Novak. How are you doing this evening? Oh, thank you. Well, well, I guess well is not the best word for right now, but I'm doing okay. Thank you. Thank you for uh, calling in today. So, you were in D.C. this weekend and uh, for a Moms Demand Action conference, uh, the annual conference. Can you explain the environment there, what had happened, uh, what the agenda was, and then how it transformed after hearing about the mass shootings? Um, sure. So um, every year, Moms Demand Action volunteers who step up to become to take on more responsibilities as a leader have the opportunity to go to an annual convention and the purpose is to learn more uh, to network and to support each other and this year we had almost 2,000 members which is unheard of um, this is a huge number for us additionally we uh, that also includes many survivors and for the first time we had students as part of our students demand action chapter we had a couple hundred students and you know the state of America when it comes to gun violence uh, you know the sad irony is that of course, there would be a mass shooting during this gathering. And so we happened to be in um, a gathering room, a ballroom, where we were listening to some of the featured speakers, and they made an announcement about um, 
what was going on in San Antonio. We had, you know, uh, Dayton hadn't happened yet. And as you can imagine, in a room full of, uh, first off, survivors, many of them survivors of mass shootings, and people who care very much about this issue, and students who got involved because of Parkland, it was um, devastating. And um, it certainly made, because um, oftentimes this convention is a celebration of all the hard work that we do and our accomplishments, but it certainly put a damper, understandably, over um, the atmosphere. And But at the same time, we are happy to be around people who know how to support each other through something like this. Um, one very interesting note, um, the fo a lot of the focus this year was on um, improving diversity and including more um, people in the movement. And when I say diversity, you know, moms is known as a, lots of women, but diversity includes having more men, you know, having more people who are from rural areas and even some gun owners and people who are underrepresented in these kinds of organizations. And in that context, we have had some fantastic students from Baltimore who, you know, have a special place in my heart right now just because of what they were going through right before this, who happened to be um, speaking to the group. And they came, And one of the phenomenal students, his name is Antonio, came up. And what he pointed out, which uh, was really well received, is, yes, we should all be very upset about what's going on in El Paso. It's devastating. But just remember that three people were shot in Baltimore last night. And somebody was shot to death in St. Louis. And nobody has that kind of response. And the media attention doesn't happen to those kind of shootings. And we want everybody to recognize that all victims and survivors are really, really impacted in ways that we would never understand. And they all deserve our understanding and our empathy. And when he said that, everybody got up and clapped. And so it was you know, acknowledging the devastation every time there's a mass shooting because it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's, I, it seems like sometimes it's out of nowhere. It could happen to any of us. But understanding that gun violence has many different facets and for some people who are afflicted more than others by what I think is a public health scourge, um, they get less attention and they get less resources. And so it was a really, I think, a very important moment for all of us. That's, Sorry, I went on a long spiel. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. And uh, a good segue, because I just wanted to mention that according to the Gun Violence Archives website, and I checked this often, to date, right now, the number of deaths because of gun-related uh, violence is 8,856 people, and that's just for 2019. We're not even through this summer yet. So to your point, uh, there are many people who are affected uh, by gun violence, and they don't go, they don't, their stories aren't heard. And I think that contributes to a lot of people normalizing this situation, normalizing these mass murders. And uh, how do you recommend people not become desensitized? Um, that's a good question. I think that for those of us who are on the ground, and that includes Gays Against Guns and every organization that cares about equity and cares about um, ensuring um, uh that our you know, future generations have the best life possible, that uh, we have to keep letting people know that this is an issue that impacts all of us. And to not become and to not become numb also means taking self-care breaks every once in a while, but making sure that you pay attention to what's going on in your community because gun violence is so much more than just the injury. It has impacts on 
um, society in terms of resources. You know, every time somebody who's young dies from gun violence, that's a member of the community who's leaving behind a family who has to then deal with PTSD. And for survivors who actually survive gun violence, you know, the health care costs, the PTSD, the uh, mental health, it's, it's, it's so much more than just an issue with it's just guns. Uh, uh, you know, in an ana- inanimate object, it's, it's such a, it's an issue that is pervasive in how our society works and the in- inequities that we already see. And if you care about that, then you can't grow numb. But I do, but I am concerned that because of social media, because of the way the media works, and, I, and I'm not sure that anybody's like evil and like thinking about this, but because we're on sensory overload, it's like at some point, it's like I'm worried that it's going to be a body count or an unusual kind of victim. Like if they're all kids, that's what triggers our, you know, mass empathy. And that's really, really concerning to me. But I think that we all have a responsibility to call out the names and point out the people. And if you're on social media, when you share articles about mass shootings, also share articles about people that are in the community that suffer, or I shouldn't say suffer, but have died or have been um, injured by gun violence. We have a we have a duty to share the message about all people impacted about um, impacted by gun violence. Sunny, we thank you so much for joining us tonight. I would like to ask you one more question before we um, we ask for callers to uh, call in, comment, ask questions about gun violence and gun violence prevention. We hear that on the national front, we are beginning to hear the term domestic terrorism used to describe gun violence, and the Democratic candidates have made gun, made gun violence prevention part of their platform. Um, can, you, can you reflect on that now, and um, how are you feeling about this change in language about domestic terrorism and the consequences for domestic terrorism or the lack thereof, uh, according to our lawmakers now? So, um, so first off, I'm not an expert on domestic terrorism, and I think that one. And you just mentioned something. I think that there is in, uh, there's a lack of understanding of exactly what that means, and um, in terms of um, how to address it, it's being ignored. What I would say is what I would say in terms of being um, a gun violence prevention volunteer for an organization is that what I see and I don't think that anybody can deny this, is there's a lot of hateful rhetoric and divisiveness, and it comes from the top. And when you have that kind of hate festering in a country where the gun laws are as promiscuous as our gun laws are, you're going to have people who are driven by hate who are going to use a weapon that will allow them to create the most terror. And when you... And that's, you know, when we talk about banning semi-automatic rifles, I think it's, you know, we all talk about that because it's such a deadly weapon. But there's also, uh, and the gun industry sells it. It's a, it's, it invokes fear and terror. It's a, it's a weapon designed to not just kill as many people, but it just, you know, incites fear by just seeing it. And so um, I haven't wrapped my head around all of that yet. But, yeah, it makes sense when you have all this hatred and, and, and the leader at the top is talking about punching people and promoting violence, you know, you're going to have citizens of our country actually attacking other citizens with a weapon designed to kill as many people and to incite fear. And so, you know, like with anything complicated, 
we have to make sure that we have we ensure that people who are dangerous don't have access to weapons, and we need to uh, uh, do something, uh, meaning vote, volunteer, do whatever you can to vote out the people who are really harming us and not doing what's best for everybody. Well, Sunny, we thank you so much for coming in and for telling us about what's going on with Mom's Demand to Action. Um, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, Gays Against Guns. We are hosting the news tonight. I am Sarah Germain Lilly, and I'm here with Mary Ellen Novak. So, Sarah, let me ask you, New York State Senator Gillibrand says her views have changed on gun violence. So do you think it's possible that other Americans can change their views as well on uh, gun violence and guns in general, gun ownership? Well, I do know that people change when there's a tragedy. And unfortunately, a lot of times it takes a crisis to change. But in this country, we've been experiencing crisis after crisis, and we still haven't been able to change the um, laws in the country and the access to guns and I think that we really have specific remedies that we need our lawmakers to take responsibility for. A majority of Americans feel that we need uh, background checks, that we need a ban on assault weapons, that we need to ban large capacity magazines. So as far as people changing inside, I think you know this too. I've seen it with my students, yes. You know, when does it happen? When do students change? Usually they change because of an experience. Sometimes they change because of information that they get. What do you think about this? Uh, well, I think Kathy had mentioned that uh, there are a lot of people who already agree that there uh, should be changes made. And I think you had mentioned, you had just said this as well, is that it's just bringing, uh, calling the, legis the uh, people who have the capacity to pass those laws uh, really calling them to task and uh, making sure that they do follow through with those uh, drafting smart legislation and then also gathering the public support so that they could go ahead and uh, gain, gain momentum. But there's one, Sarah, let me ask you your impression about this. So last night at the vigil, and actually I've been thinking about this for a while there uh, at events and we were at Times Square on Sunday, and, uh, and Gagat hosted its own uh, action in response to the mass shootings. But one of the chants that I often hear is the one word, vote. So I'm always questioning whether, in, whether vote is just the responsibility of going to a booth or what else that could possibly mean to, what do you think that means? How does that, what does that mean to you when you hear that or when you say it? I love your question. Because you are making me think of when you hear somebody make a racist or a harmful remark that they're, they may not be aware of or an inappropriate joke. Do you just let it go by? Or do you call them on it? Or do you ask them, why, why did you say that? Uh, that? That doesn't feel right to me. Is this part of voting? When you see uh, children in your neighborhood putting themselves in harm's way, do you stand up and vote? I bet you do. I know I do. If I see kids messing around and I'm at the bodega, I'm going to say, um, no, kids, this isn't the right place for this. And, and I have I've spoken to many parents and other teachers who talk about a community responsibility that existed in times past that doesn't exist today, and perhaps that's part of voting too. 
What do you think of that aspect? Well, I think one of the things that I was thinking about as far as that puzzle, as far as voting, and when I'm saying that, I think it goes beyond just going to the voting booth and then pushing a button. And then it's just a lot of pressure on one particular day, one particular brief moment. And I think for me, what's involved behind that word is actually reaching out to politicians, reaching out to other uh, grassroots organizations where we could put some legislation together. We can help affect some positive changes. Uh, put people on the ballot, uh, get this these laws uh, enacted, uh, and you really do that by hitting the streets, by also within your offices, by discussing uh, different uh, facets of a law that could possibly help make these changes take place. So it's not just a person going into the voting booth, but it's that person going to, again, a grassroots organization, going into a polit politician's office, speaking to them or their staff and saying, what can I do to help bring a law together or to help get you voted in again? So that that's the whole process. I think that's all encompassing as, as far as the word vote is concerned. So people taking action before going to November or whenever it's going to take place. And we see that action on the rise. Well, that is the WVAI Evening News for Tuesday, August 6th, 2019. The news was produced with our radio gag team. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly with Mary Ellen Novak. Have a good evening. You'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. Or the times they are Privatize with your pen And keep your eyes wide The chance won't come again And don't speak too soon For the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was a loser now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Code Pink Women for Peace is coming to you live from Washington, D.C. and New York City beginning Thursday, August 1st at 11 a.m. Code Pink Radio is an energizing new program focused on ending wars and militarism and building a peace economy. Listen weekly to robust conversation and inspiration from grassroots peacemakers from places like Korea, Yemen, Venezuela, Palestine, and Iran, as well as peacemakers in our nation's capital, who are confronting war hawks in the White House and in Congress and modeling the actions we want our government to take. Again, that's Code Pink Radio, Thursdays at 11 a.m. on Washington, D.C.'s WPFW and New York City's WBAI, an engaging hour of cutting-edge conversation not to be missed. We are the women of the world. We're from the east.